All right, good morning. Um, and you're already standing, so uh, with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and, is and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. Well, we are returning to the gospel according to Mark, which we've been working through now for almost a year and a half as a church as a way to kind of orient our life and our ministry and our community um, around the person of Jesus and his teachings. This Jesus we claim to follow. This is to get to know him in this book that was believed to be, if you remember back to the first, I think we've mentioned this a few times, but certainly the first week of Mark, it's believed to be based on the testimony of the Apostle Peter, written down by John Mark, who was one of the Apostle Paul's associates, a, a key leader in his own right in the early church, and more than anything, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, as Mark used his own artistic gifts to write down this theological biography that exists to get us to know Jesus and to follow after him closely. That's why this book exists, to help us follow him. It just so happens we've actually finally mapped out the end of the gospel according to Mark. So we are going to finish the book uh, Easter 2023, if that makes sense. So the last, last week of Mark will be Easter next year. And there will be, we've got several gaps and breaks planned to do other things as well, including kind of a sizable one this summer. But uh, the end is nigh for our time in Mark. Not that nigh, I guess it's kind of like a year away. <laughs> Not that nigh. But uh, by way of reminder, in this section of Mark, we're, we're, we're post the transfiguration story, which was this, this moment where Jesus took three of his key disciples up on this mountain in, the, in northern Israel, and he revealed himself in all of his divine glory. His, his appearance was changed so that he shined forth brighter than anyone could conceive. His, show, his clothes were whiter, it says, than anyone could bleach. It was this supernatural appearance where this Jesus, this humble carpenter, uh, this, this kind of unassuming man, was shown to be who he actually is fundamentally, which is the divine son of God. And, and that commingled with this, these discussions the disciples and Jesus were having about who is he? And, and there was this declaration from Peter that he, that he said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, yes, I am. I'm this figure that everyone has been waiting for. Israel has been pleading and longing for for so long who's going to come and put things right. I am that, but I'm going to go suffer and die. He told them in the same breath. 
And so this section of Mark is them leaving that mountaintop experience and coming back down into the chaos of life and making their way back down south towards Jerusalem where he keeps saying, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to suffer and die. And in the middle of all that, Jesus' teachings are beginning to get more intense, actually. Um, they're beginning to get a little bit more confrontational. If you remember, the last time we were in Mark was that teaching Jesus shared about hell. Um, so it's getting really intense. And then now, entering chapter 10, which is where we are now, um, we're going we're gonna to continue that theme, but, but it's going to include some of Jesus' most personal and most difficult teachings. Jesus is going to get into our business, into those areas that for, for many of us, we don't want anyone to peer into, places where you go, yeah, but that's private, Jesus. You don't get to speak into that. Jesus is going to come into those areas, and he's going to say, if you want to follow me, that's mine too. That's mine too. Today's passage, as, as Sarah just read for us, is a word from Jesus about divorce. Um, not just divorce, but where Jesus takes that question about divorce is into the meaning of marriage itself and then some of the implications around remarriage. And I know when this passage was read a few minutes ago and now with me just stating, hey, this is a divorce sermon, that there's a whole bunch of different reactions that just got triggered around the room. Um, so we just, we just want to name a few of them. First, there are some of you that have been divorced. And, and you may have just experienced that hot flash of panic or, or tragically shame that often comes when a pastor in a pulpit starts banging around these sensitive areas like a bull in a china shop, you know? And right now I just want to say to you out of the gate, like, I acknowledge you. I know some of you. I probably don't know some of you who've, who've experienced divorce, been through divorce firsthand. But I acknowledge you and the grief that you probably carry, and I just want to say that you are loved. And it's sad that churches have to articulate this and vocalize this, but I want you to say that you are, I want to make it explicit, you are welcome here. Uh, the last thing I want this teaching to do is to pile guilt and shame on top of you because I don't believe that's what Jesus is after in this teaching. And because I believe that Jesus' words here are ultimately good news for you as well, as they are for all of us. Second, there are some of you in this room right now who are married, but whose marriages are unspeakably difficult right, right now. And I, I say unspeakably quite intentionally, that you've never been able to tell a soul just how bad it really is. Um, I know that this message then for you, for some of you, will be received as a word of hope, possibly an encouragement, but for others it will feel like an especially heavy weight. And either way, I just, just, just want you to know that I know that, that marital struggle is never surprising, and marital struggle is never a failure, okay? It's a universal reality. To be married is to struggle. <laughs> it just is. And you are not alone in that. And so I just would say your brothers and your sisters want to bear those burdens with you. I certainly do. And the key to pressing through those really difficult times that can and do come is to do it in community, is to begin to take that courageous step of opening up what is going on to a wider circle who can actually love you and shoulder that weight with you. Some of the worst outcomes in marriages are whenever those things are never spoken. Third, I know that these discussions about marriage and divorce sometimes feel really alienating to single folks. 
Um, so if you're single, whether you desire to be married or not, and I've had enough conversation to know there are people, single people in this community who have no desire to be married. Um, they suspect they're, they're called to singleness for, for kingdom purposes. And then there are many single folks who deeply desire to be married. Either way, I just declare this. There is absolutely equal dignity and kingdom value whether you're single or married. So anytime we wade into to marriage, it's, it's not to, to sort of create a second-class citizen out of, out of single people. But we're going to talk about it because Jesus talked about it. I just want you to know that you're not forgotten in the weeds of all this. In fact, as I've been wrestling through this sermon all week, like single people have been particularly on my heart and mind. Um, so I just want to state this plainly and, and, and know that my desire is that this sermon would help equip you for marriage if you so desire to be married one day. And if you do not, it, I pray that it would, <laughs> it would help equip you to come alongside those in your life who are going to need you to come and offer that support and scaffolding in their difficult marriages. And last one. Last one, I just want to acknowledge that there is probably not a single person in this room who has not been in, affected by divorce in some way. Um, it's incredibly rare in our culture, in our time, that A, that, <laughs> you know, divorce is incredibly common, so it's, it'd be rare for there not to be a sizable number of people who haven't been divorced themselves, but then beyond that, um, for people to have experienced the divorce of their own parents and the dissolution of their own family, um, or to, have, to be close to someone, an extended family member, a deep friendship, whatever, who's gone through a divorce. And it just always impacts us. It always does. I would go, I'd go ahead and wager that 99% of the people in this room have been impacted in some significant way by divorce. For me personally, I'm reminded of the pains of the divorce most often when I think about this distant relationship that I have with my half-sister from my dad's prior marriage. Before my dad married my mom, he was married to another woman. They had a daughter together. They divorced. My dad remarried. Fortunately, my whole life, my parents have been together, so I've grown up in a, this, this stable home. But I have this sister that, that's been part of this different household that I've rarely been able to connect with and see, and that pains me. It's always this visceral reminder. It's, it's, it's a complex web of reasons why we haven't been able to be as close as I would like. Uh, but nonetheless, it's... it's the fruit, the fruit of that divorce. Or, or for myself, I know I've been reminded, just to speak frankly, of the temptation to divorce at the hardest moments of my own marriage when pain and emotional distance and deep patterns that seem intractable keep resurfacing. Fortunately, as far, as far as I know, it's for, this is true for my wife as well. Neither of us have ever been to the point where we've seriously, like, legitimately contemplated divorcing the other. But I'd be lying if I said there aren't flashes of, man, wouldn't it just be easier to be done with this? Wouldn't it just be easier? In the last year, more than that, two separate of some of my very best friends have experienced the pain of divorce. One of them... <laughs> after I was the one who officiated and walked that couple into marriage, which just brings a, a special grief and weight to me. I know it's far worse for them, but nonetheless, that, that is, that's a unique grief that I carry about that marriage in particular. It touches us all. That's my point. It touches us all. And on that note, last disclaimer, I know that one, no one sermon can speak to all the complexities and all the questions and all the pains of a subject so just pastorally sensitive and difficult. 
And honestly, this word from Jesus in Mark 10 is not the only time that Jesus spoke on this, and it's not the only thing he had to say on this, nor for the apostles either. Though I would say that this passage gets to the heart of the matter from which everything else flows. My point is that the real life, flesh and blood, like this is not a drill, realities and situations we find ourselves must be worked out with Bibles open, with prayer and vulnerable community, usually in good marital therapy, which I commend to no end, and on and on and on. This sermon can't do all that. But may this morning serve not just as a teaching, that's good, that's good. I hope it's a truthful teaching, but I want it to serve as an invitation more than anything, an invitation to, to reach out to anyone and everyone who's struggling to reach out in their marriage, to start moving forward with Jesus together in community, whatever's going on. Amen? Okay. Well, let's pray and get into it. Father, this is, this is heavy territory, and it's very easy um, for, for people speaking with a microphone um, into a crowd. Granted, of some people I know very well and some people I don't know at all, and everything in between to speak in a way that's ultimately damaging, and in so being damaging, it's, uh, it's not reflective, Lord, of your heart in these matters. So, so scaffold my words, Lord. Protect me from saying anything that's, that's not of you. If I do, Father, may it just dissipate into the ether. May we all forget it. And may your truth come. And may your grace come. And may uh, your gospel, Lord, the way your gospel, the good news of what you've done on the cross, May it, its connection to even these thorny issues of divorce be crystal clear. Guide this time, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark 1, or Mark 10, verse 1. Jesus left there. He's heading south into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. So he's kind of describing a, a broad geographical travel and activity here. And, and again, crowds were gathering to him. This was the pattern. And as these crowds gather, Jesus is always compassionate, isn't he? He's trying to do things, but the crowds come, he stops, he teaches them. It says he taught them, as was his custom, usually about the kingdom of God, what's life like in his kingdom. He's, he's continuing that theme. <clears throat> and the Pharisees came up to him. And in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus is teaching as he usually does. And, and the Pharisees come up with this incredibly tense debate um, that they want to bring Jesus into. And it says that it's to test him. And that word test, um, it's interesting. In Mark's gospel, only Satan and the Pharisees slash the Herodians test Jesus. So that word is only applied to them. Those are the only two groups that ever come and test and tempt Jesus. Funny enough. Jesus is aware of it here. They lack sincerity. They have a crucially important question for him. This is not to, to denigrate the value and importance of this question. But, but Mark makes clear that their heart was not sincere. They wanted to trap Jesus. They were trying to ask him this hot question to incriminate him, get him to incriminate himself. Remember what happened to John the Baptist. We read about this several chapters ago in Mark, but John the Baptist spoke out against an illegitimate divorce and remarriage on the part of uh, Herod, and he ended up being beheaded because of this. That's how hot this issue was. So 
Maybe they're thinking, maybe we can get Jesus killed by, <laughs> by the Tetrarch as well if we get him to say the wrong thing. Um, it would be like, it would be as if, like the, the heat of this would be similar to someone coming up to you, or to me, let's say, someone I don't know, who doesn't like me, doesn't trust me, and wants reason to publicly discredit me, asking, so, what do you think about abortion? Do you care about women, or do you care about babies? You know what's going on in that moment. That's a crucially important question. That's a question I'm not afraid to answer, but there's a test. There's a test in many contexts. That's the heat of this moment that they're trying to draw Jesus into. So, their question, it tapped into this debate that was raging about what the Torah, that's the first five books of of the Bible, the books of Moses, had to say about appropriate grounds for a man divorcing his wife. And it was primarily over an interpretation of this one particular passage in Deuteronomy 24. And I actually, I put it up on the screen. Next slide, I think. Deuteronomy 24. uh, There we go. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, yeah, um, says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and this is all one sentence, by the way, one run-off, run-on sentence, it's a doozy. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who has sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. Well, there is a lot there that just rubs every inch of our kind of sensibility raw, like sandpaper. But here's the debate. The debate hinged on one understanding of that highlighted word, indecency, in the Hebrew. What is the meaning of that word? One rabbi, one school of thought said this. This rabbi named Shammai, he argued that a man could only pursue divorce in response to marital infidelity, to adultery, to cheating. That's what's behind indecency. That's a very narrow, like if, if, if he finds her, she's been unfaithful in the marriage, then he can go about this process of writing a certificate of divorce. Another rabbi's name was Hillel. And Hillel said, no, 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 that's too narrow. What this is referring to is what it says. Anything indecent, anything determined by the man to be indecent. The, the, the example that was recorded <laughs> in the Mishnah was even if she spoils the food that she's prepared for him. So what, what Hillel said is that any reason at all is good enough reason. She ruins your food, some other woman looks better, you name it. So this is the debate that the Pharisees are trying to bring Jesus into in order to trap him. What do you say? Whose side do you fall on on this matter, Jesus? And I would just ask you, in this particularly patriarchal culture, whose definition do you think was more popular? Any guess? Of course it was Rabbi Hillel's. The prevailing view was that a man could leave his wife for any reason. And by the way, women, basically, with rare exception, could not pursue divorce. The question isn't, okay, well, what about grounds for the woman? Just not even a question in their culture. But men, 
men were entitled to an entirely transactional relationship to their, to their wives and their marriages. What was marriage for in this culture on this understanding? It was for satisfying men. If a wife were to do something I don't like or to not do something I do like, I'll leave you. I'll go find someone better. And I have this great, I can write you the certificate, on and on, there you go, wash my hands of it, no big deal. And we are horrified, we are right to be horrified by that. I mean, I think hopefully immediately you go, oh, that doesn't sound too much like Jesus, and you would be absolutely correct. It was an unjust and, and corrupt system that had flowed out of this misunderstanding of this Hebrew, Deuteronomy 24 passage. We scoff at it, and rightly so, but I, I would just submit to you that our culture in 2022 in Portland has simply taken this frivolous view of marriage. Like, oh yeah, just whatever. Some, you don't like it? Just get out. Just go. And it's made it more egalitarian. It's, it's given that power to both parties. Women can absolutely pursue divorce from men in this culture. But it hasn't fundamentally changed the issue. In 1969, I believe it was, Governor Ronald Reagan signed the first no-fault divorce bill into law in California, um, which, which fundamentally changed our understanding of what constituted grounds for divorce in the U.S. New York State was the last state to do so with one in 2010. I always thought that was interesting, that they were the last. Um, so now all 50 states have what's called no-fault divorce in, in the United States of America. And while some of the things that motivated this were, were absolutely well-intentioned, there were abuses that were trying to be mitigated against and so forth, nonetheless, it enshrined a very, very low view of marriage into our cultural imagination, and we are all impacted by it. You'd, we'd have to be lying to say we are not impacted by that. Law is a teacher, and this law has had a corrosive effect on our understanding of marriage, at least in Jesus' eyes. So what is marriage for in our culture? You'd probably say it's, at fundamentally, the broad view would be that it's for each spouse's pleasure. Not, and then not to even get hung up on, you know, the very idea of, of marriage being between two parties is even being challenged. Open marriages and polyamorous and polygamous and polygynous relationships all over the place. That idea is in question as well, but you could say our culture says marriage is for each party's pleasure. And, and the moment it ceases to be pleasing enough, the moment I'm ceasing to get that which I desire out of it, wipe your hands of it, file, and move on. We imagine with little consequence. With little consequence. So, our culture is in some ways very different. Our culture is in some ways the same as the culture that Jesus was butting up against here. So the conversation continues. What's the question? So Jesus answers them. He's, he wants to pursue the answer. He's like, okay, yeah, let's talk about this. He says, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? That word's important, command. And they said, rightly, Moses allowed. So they're not exactly answering the question, are they? What did Moses command? Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. He's talking about Deuteronomy 24 and to send her away. That's true. Moses did allow that. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, 
he wrote you this commandment. He enshrined this principle. So Jesus appeals to the Torah, the books of Moses. Again, we talked, we've been talking about this the last few weeks. Jesus viewed the scriptures as authoritative. He says, let's go to Moses. What's Moses say? What did Moses command? And they say, well, look, Moses said a man could just give the woman a divorce certificate, move on, send her away. And Jesus is pointing out, like, look, this was not representative of the heart of God. This was a concession. This was an allowance. This was a workaround because of, quote, your hardness of heart. And this is crucial for, for your study of the Bible to know that these case laws, there are all kinds of these case laws across the Torah. When you come across these, know that these do not represent God's ideal at all but they represent a compromise and a concession toward a deeply broken culture in Israel, where he found them after their centuries in slavery in Egypt, okay? So you have to keep that crucial context in mind. God had made this promise to Abraham, his descendants were gonna be this great nation. One thing led to another. The people had been, the people of Israel ended up enslaved for 500 years in Egypt. And you know the story of the Exodus. God miraculously rescues them from this slavery, liberates them, brings them out into this land, and he begins this process of codifying uh, their relationship into this covenant. And he's going to give them this land. He gives them these laws, a constitution that they can live by that's going to make them different from the surrounding nations. But he had to work with them where they were. Jesus confirms this was never God's ideal, this Deuteronomy 24 stuff. This is because of your hardness of heart that he allowed this. We should say, though, because I think we read that Deuteronomy 24 passage in, in, uh, and at first blush we're like, wow, this is horrible. Like, I hate this. I hate what this says here. But we have to note, though, this was actually, actually a deeply unique humane and stabilizing thing for women in the context of the ancient nations that surrounded them. David and Stone Brewer puts it this way, uh, a scholar who's written a lot about the subject. Here's, here's how he puts it. He says, listen, it's very difficult for you to get remarried if you're a woman in the ancient Near East when the law says that your original husband can reclaim you at any time and also reclaim your children. That was the world. He might wait until your children have become economically useful workers and then decide to enforce his rights. In other countries, it was difficult for an abandoned woman to get remarried. But in Israel, this unfairness was corrected by giving her the right to receive a divorce certificate from her husband. This certificate had to be given to any woman who was abandoned or thrown out by her husband. It confirmed that her husband had divorced her and meant that it was safe for another man to marry her. He did not have to worry about her first husband coming back, returning to demand his wife back. So, okay, still grisly, still plenty of things in that description. Like, man, what a world. What a world this was. But, you, but do you see it? You see the way that this brought a sense of protection to women who, if a husband decided to discard her, you know, would basically be untouchable. No one would want to risk entering into caring for her and for her children. This was a way of mitigating against that because of the hardness of heart that existed at the time. That's what's going on with Deuteronomy 24. But that's the concession. Now Jesus is going to give the vision. Verse 6. But 
from the beginning of creation. He's, okay, you're talking about Deuteronomy 24 and this law that's come to bear because of this, partic- you know, this particular set of circumstances, Jesus working with this broken culture. But from the beginning of creation, you want to know God's undisturbed vision for these things? Let's go back to another book of Moses. Let's go where there actually is a command, an actual authoritative vision set for, not just a, a kind of a concession dealing with these broken situations. Let's go back to the very beginning. And as Jesus often does, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. He says, but from the beginning of creation, let's go back there. Before sin and ugliness ever entered the picture, injustice ever entered the picture, what was God's heart for these things? He says, God made them male and female. That's a quote from Genesis 1.27. God made them male and female. And when he, in, in quoting that, he wants to tap you into this larger theology of the creation of humanity. It's this idea that God has made humanity, one humanity, one human race, but with two fundamentally distinct complementary sub-creations there equally imaging God, equally carrying the dignity of being his pictures in the world, representing him, male and female. But when those two coming together, what happens? New life is produced. New life is produced. These two complementary image bearers come together through sexual union and produce new life. That's part of it. Cool. But he goes on. Genesis 2, quoting from 2.24, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, the, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Jesus emphasizes, he, he says it again. For those in the back, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So it says, remember that the fundamental reality of humans bearing the image of God and out of that producing new life. But then he says, and the heart of this thing is this, this whole idea of a man leaving his father and mother. So that's leaving the, the most important social relationship in your life, the one that gives you stability, identity, protection, all of these things, your relationship to your parents. He says, a man is going to leave that and by association, a woman is going to leave that and they are going to actually fundamentally create a new family together through the binding promise of covenant commitment. So you're going to, the only thing worth leaving the stability of like a loving, safe home that cares for your needs, provides you with the stability you need is to actually have that somewhere else and that's the vision. That's the vision. Covenant commitment, this word for hold fast, and then the concept of one flesh, it's this idea. It's, it's, it's hard to capture. It's hard to capture. It's the idea of a whole person union, a unity, a partnership, a co-mingling. It, it implies deep vulnerability, a kind of vulnerability that can be achieved nowhere else. More on that in a second. Deep commitment. This idea of, of joining together here, it implies the deepest friendship and the closest sharing possible. That's what God envisioned, and that's what Jesus is calling, calling us back to. And then, within that context, sex becomes part of this, whereby that intimate, 
vulnerable connection is actually physically pictured and expressed. And the bond between these two, this covenant bond, actually gets spiritually, and have you heard this, even neurochemically strengthened. You know, that's part of sex. Part of the, you go read, read your biology texts. The chemical releases that happen when men and women have sex is a bonding agent. That's why, friends, if you're frivolous with pornography or whatever else, or, or just sleeping around or whatever, it's not a neutral act. It's part of biologically, biochemically wiring your brain to bond with that thing which, let's just be crude, that you are orgasming to. That's why God is not a, a cosmic buzzkill when he has this, this protective vision for these things. This exists. Sexual union exists to codify and to strengthen again and again and again, neurochemically and spiritually, this covenant bond that these two people have made to one another. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. So if we're honest, if we're honest, I think... <laughs> We've all been, to one degree or another, been conditioned by our culture to view this idea of covenant commitment, like an unbreakable promise to the other, as kind of a killer of intimacy. Everything we see in like TV shows and movies, everything we read in our novels, whatever, it, it tends to depict um, sort of, sort of long-term covenant-esque relationships, if you can even find one, as sort of like a buzzkill sad, passionless, kind of a drag, kind of a drain, and then everything else, kind of the, the more illicit things or the exciting, the fun, the things where the real intimacy lies. We rarely think of something like traditional wedding vows as particularly exciting or having anything to do with intimacy or passion. Think of vows that promise to remain faithful, quote, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until parted by death. That's covenant language. We don't think of that as like really related at all to intimacy, but I would argue that a marriage covenant, if lived into properly, is the only thing that can actually produce genuine deep intimacy over time. What do I mean by that? What I mean that is that if those promises weren't there, that both these two people saying, I will be here, listen, no matter what, if that promise is not there, there would always be, there is always the fear of sharing a little bit deeper, a little more honestly, of, of truly pressing into the points of conflict. People tend to turn away from conflict. If I really press into this, if we really get into this thing and discover we disagree on something that really, really matters, maybe she'll leave me. Maybe he'll leave me. If I can be honest about this sin struggle I'm dealing with and I'm wrestling with and I'm hiding away from everyone, then maybe, maybe it'll be over. And on and fill in example after example. But, but, if there's covenant commitment there, if these two people have honestly said to one another, like, I will be here no matter what, then that gives you the freedom and the boldness to actually reveal who you really are in all your ugliness. We've all got ugliness, all your brokenness. Lean into your disagreements and let you see them for what they actually are, even if they're painful. 
And you know what's on the other side of that? Every time you actually push through and keep doing that hard work, more intimacy, depth, a closeness that you couldn't have even imagined on the front side of that thing. But the only way to get there is that if you actually know it's safe to do so, and the only way you'll know it's safe to do so is if this person is covenanted to you and you have covenanted to them. You see it? We make a mockery of this stuff in our culture, but it is so deep and beautiful and true. So this union, this union is part of acting in accordance with bearing the image of God. We're not like the animals. We're not supposed to be. We leave our father and our mother and we form this new family, this new fundamental primary family unit that becomes this covenant safe haven if it's lived out properly for one another, for the two partners, and then for any children that are produced. And whoa, okay, now let's talk about children in that mix because we don't even think about it. We think about marriage once again. How does this make me feel? How does this make my spouse feel? Are we, whatever. But again, under normal circumstances, and of course, we have to disclaim this, there are all kinds of marriages that, that tragically, like, they, 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 they're, there's a depth of grief here that can be so unimaginable uh, when you're unable to conceive children. So, of course, those cases exist. Of course. Um, but God's design, under normal circumstances, pre-fall, is that men, women come together and new life is created. And in the safety of that covenant bond, it's this covenant safe haven for the, for the, for the, the, the husband and the wife and for any children that might be produced, that they're not, they too are not having to worry about, is mom going to be here? Is dad going to be here? Is this thing going to survive? Is there, so many of us know firsthand the hell of having to worry about that. Ephesians 5, you read the Apostle Paul, he's talking about, he's giving kind of this, this vision of, of marital relationships and he concludes it by saying, I'm talking about marriage. I'm also talking about Christ and the church. So we're not just imaging the nature of God, we're imaging the relationship in how we relate to one another in our marriage as we are communicating to our spouses, to our children, to our church community, and to the watching world what Jesus is like with his people. That is a heavy thing, friends. That is a heavy thing, but it's a beautiful That's the logic of marriage. It's the logic of marriage. And it goes back to page one and page two of the Bible. And so Jesus then draws, draws this application. He says, verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the command. Do not separate it or divide it. Who's that command directed towards? Here it's, it's, it's directed towards husbands. Because Wives, in this culture, they didn't have this option to separate it. To the husbands, he says, do not separate or divide what God has brought together. Sometimes we read that verse, verse 9, and we say, what God has joined together cannot be separated. But notice, that's not what it says. It says, do not separate. Do not separate. And that's because Jesus knows far better than most of us do that relationally, emotionally, 
spiritually, divorce is hell. Family therapist Carl Whitaker once wrote, the craziest thing about marriage is that one cannot get divorced. I might qualm with him there, but let's keep reading. We just do not seem to make it out of intimate relationships. He says, it's obviously possible to divide up property and to decide not to live together anymore, but it is impossible to go back to being single. Marriage is like a stew that has irreversible and irrevocable characteristics that the parts cannot get rid of. Divorce is leaving a part of the self behind like a rabbit who escapes the trap by gnawing one leg off. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's not because he's harsh. It's not because he's a prude. It's not because he's uncool. It's not because he's a buzzkill. It's because he wants your deepest good. He does not want you to have to gnaw your leg off. Just personally, you think about this through a justice lens. Commentator Ben Witherington says, easy divorce of women with young children in their culture means, or in ours for that matter, means abrogating responsibility for caring for the most important members of society at a time of maximal vulnerability. The community that forms around Jesus will be an alternative community. If, the, if this word isn't heated, it becomes a time where women and children suffer. And he says, not in my family. That's what Jesus is after here. Jesus' point of all this. Jesus, can a, can, a, can a man divorce his wife? Matthew's parallel account actually includes the full phrase, uh, which is interesting. When they ask the same story in Matthew 19, they ask Jesus this, they say, can a man divorce his wife, quote, for any reason? So it very explicitly clues you into what is being asked here. And I think that's the, the subtext of what's being asked here too. Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? What do you think? That's what Hillel says. What do you think? Jesus' response, he hasn't even answered the question. Really? He's answered it far more deeper than they could even imagine. He says, no, you're asking the wrong question. The bond of marriage is far deeper than your frivolous debate acknowledges. He says, you have no idea how important and deep and rich this joining together is. This idea is the heartbeat of all that we must think about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That's how Jesus chooses to answer the trick question, the trap question. Verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. In Matthew's account, there's this funny little, it puts some more detail to this. They they say to Jesus, um, they say, if such is the case, this is in Matthew 19, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. What does this tell us? That Jesus' own disciples had been so enculturated by this frivolous, contractual, male-serving vision of marriage that their first reaction to Jesus laying all this out is like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And if there's not a part of you (laughs) that that doesn't feel that hearing Jesus' words, I, I submit that you have not quite captured the immense weight of what Jesus is talking about here. But Mark kind of condenses this. It says, they asked him again about this matter later. 
but there's panic in their voices probably. And Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Isn't that interesting that in a culture where women could not divorce, Jesus actually grants them a little bit of agency here in how he talks about it. Jesus' point here is, look, to start talking about the grounds for divorce is to begin this whole conversation on the wrong foot. And we can certainly talk about things that have the potential to fundamentally break a marital covenant. Jesus does it and Paul does it. Note this, in the parallel account, again, Matthew 19, Jesus says this. This is how Matthew summarizes what Jesus says here. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for marital or for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Oh, that's interesting. When Matthew recounts the story, Jesus says, well, actually, infidelity can, has the potential to break, break the marital covenant. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. I think what Paul's getting at is if, if you're abandoned by your spouse, your spouse moves on, leaves you, you're not enslaved. You're free to remarry. The very nature of the marital covenant is the ongoing pursuit of permanence and forgiveness. It requires so much forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation and the pursuit of restoration every time there's a rupture in it. But what Jesus gets at in Matthew, what, Jesus, what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 7, 15 is that sometimes a marriage is irreparably broken by things like infidelity or abandonment. And I would argue that you could put abuse into that category as well. And that the New Testament seems to indicate that it's the victim who decides when enough is enough. If we were teaching a sermon on Matthew 19, we'd probably spend more time there. If we were preaching the sermon on 1 Corinthians 7, we'd probably spend more time there. I feel like it's at least worth mentioning in this sermon. And here's what you have to do when you hear these, this harsh statement from Jesus here in verses 11 and 12. You have to imagine Jesus stepping in front of a would-be abandoner of his family Jesus stepping in front of this person on behalf of this spouse, this wife, and their children and calling this person to repent. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason, Jesus? No. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. This is Jesus stepping in on behalf of these women and these children and saying, not in my family. question we might ask is, is it weird that Mark did not include all that Jesus said here? If Jesus did, in fact, say, except for sexual immorality, isn't that kind of scandalous that, Jesus did not that Mark did not include that in his telling of this in Mark chapter 10? And I don't think so. Because the focus of this passage, what Mark wants to communicate to us, 
is on Jesus' response to this question of whether a husband can frivolously discard a wife, Jesus answers with a discussion on the fundamental nature of marriage. You want to know what marriage is? It's permanent commitment, full stop. So don't come at me with all this. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Do you know what marriage is for? And he leaves it there. So I say for today, with our time in Mark 10, we let the full weight of that hit us. And yes, pastorally, I say yes, there are things that can irreparably destroy a marital covenant, tragically, because of our hardness of heart. And pastorally, let's weep over those things together. Let's open our Bibles together. Let's work through those things together. But, but, but that's always, you know, just, just so quickly to go and, well, what about this? What about this? Let's just let the weight of the vision rest on our shoulders. Amen? That's what Jesus is doing here. That's what Mark is doing here. Maybe thinking, maybe you're divorced, maybe you're in a marriage where you have deeply wronged your spouse. Maybe thinking, well, what in the world does this mean for me? And like Paul says in Ephesians 5, we can't talk about marriage without instantly talking about the covenant that God has made with us in Jesus. There's this, there's this concept in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular called the new covenant. After all the covenants God had made with his people, there's this one the prophets start to talk about that it's going to be this new covenant. It's called the new covenant where God is going to do these amazing things. God is going to uh, irrevocably join himself to his people. He's going to forgive all of their sins. He's going to give them a new heart that's capable of following them with fresh fervor. And there's going to be a new intimacy with him that has never occurred before. That's what God's going to do with his people. And we see the New Testament unpack. That's precisely what, what Jesus did. The, the communion meal before his death, it is, it is a new covenant installation ceremony. The bread and the cup. He's inaugurating a new covenant that's going to be formed and enacted when he goes to the cross. And so I say to you, no matter your marital struggles or your failings or your sin against your spouse, no matter how severe it is, if you have trusted Jesus, then he has made this covenant with you. Never, ever, ever to be rescinded. Marital, failing, even divorce is not the unforgivable sin. You know why? Because there is no unforgivable sin apart from the outright rejecting of him and his Holy Spirit, what they call the blaspheming of the Spirit. To deny Jesus, to deny the Spirit's work through him, to say, I don't want that. In fact, with the context of that story, it's to attribute the glorious work of Jesus by the power of the Spirit to the work of Satan. So though you may have failed your earthly spouse, though you may fail your God, we all will, we all do. He will never break his promise to you to save you and to make you part of his family. Praise God. That's why our, 
our vision of marriage is so important because it's meant to point us all to remember that's what God is like. They will be joined together, never to be separated. That's what God has done for you in Christ. On the other side, some of us have experienced the acute pain of a husband or a wife deeply breaking, breaking and abandoning the marriage covenant or of parents who did so and all that that entails for us as children. We can, we can lean into this teaching recognizing that it will never be so with Jesus. Those deep attachment wounds that are formed, they take, they take a lot of work to heal. And I don't want to just over-spiritualize this and say, yeah, well, if you just trust Jesus, like that pain goes away. It doesn't. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying part of, part of something that can, that can come in and whisper into those deep places of hurt like nothing else is the, is the true offering that Jesus will never do that to us. When you are united to him, he does not break his word. He does not break his covenant. It will never be so with the king. Friends, he is so good. He is so good. And, and by the way, glimpsing that, that reality about Jesus, experiencing it in our sin, falling short, turning our back on Jesus and finding he keeps coming back with grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and open arms. That is the only thing I'm convinced. It's the only thing I know of that will give you the strength to continue and actually do the same in your own earthly marriage. It's to see how much he has loved you and poured out for you and continues to come back, come back, bloodied and broken, even on the cross. And to say, if he's done that for me, so much more extreme, I can find the strength to forgive as well. This passage focuses on the unique ways that the marriage covenant reflects God and his loving commitments within himself and toward his people. And so for all of us, whatever our past, whatever our present, may we look to Jesus who can supply all that we need. Amen? Let's pray.